My wife, Laura, and I have four children. They were born close together. There's six years between the eldest and the youngest. And when they were very small and we were much younger, the church here sent us to Greece on a mission trip. It was the first mission trip of the church after we started the church. And uh, we, when we went there, decided that we should have a will. And so we went to an attorney and had him draw up a will. And with small children, as you can understand, we had to be concerned not only to be sure that what little we had would go for our children's needs, but also concerned that uh, they would be taken care of as well. And so in our will, we appointed two different parties to do things. One is we appointed a couple that we knew and were friends with to be guardians to our children in case we were not around. And then we appointed another person, in this case my brother, to be the trustee of our state, which meant he would manage the money and, and use it for the children wisely as they were growing up. And just recently, like a few weeks ago, my wife and I had a conversation and realized that we had never updated that part of our will, and things over the last 25 years have changed dramatically, and we needed to update things, and so we uh, did that just this last week. But the fact is, um, my brother passed away last year, and my uh, youngest child is going to turn 30 this next year, which I'm having real difficulty comprehending how that could ever happen. But um, things made it such that our children no longer needed uh, the structure that we had put together for them. They don't need someone to dole out the money for their needs so that they can be taken care of, and uh, they're adults. They don't need a guardian to watch over them. In fact, some of them are parents now, and three of the four are married. They're adults with jobs and spouses and families, and they don't have the same needs that they had in the past. And it's that idea of the passage from childhood to adulthood and the changes that take place between those two states that I want to think about for a few minutes that's what Paul uses to describe the difference between what happened after Christ came and the conditions of life that existed, at least for him and others like him, before Christ came. He, he contrasts childhood and adulthood as two different ways of relating to God. And um, he uses it to help us understand what Christianity is all about. And so this is an important passage because so many people misunderstand what is the Christian faith all about? Is it just a, a religion like the other religions, only different in these specific ways? Is there something qualitatively different about it? Now, if you think in one sense he was describing the difference in the two parts of this passage between religion, as it's commonly conceived, and a relationship with God that many people describe the Christian faith being. I don't want to think about that for a few minutes, but we need to start by acknowledging that the word religion is used in the Bible, and the word relationship with God is not used in the Bible, even though those are the terms we use today. Religion is used twice in the New Testament to refer to the Christian faith. However, it's important to note that when it's used in the Bible, it refers to religion as godliness or piety, uh, like James says in the book of James, this is pure and undefiled religion, that you care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world. 
So he's describing there what is true godliness like? What is a godly person who does the things that God desires? What is his character and how does he behave and that kind of thing? It never uses the word religion to describe it as we commonly use it today to think of a whole system of ways of thinking and all of the people to adhere, who adhere to that way of thinking and relating to the spiritual realm. In the Bible, like in the Old Testament, where you think of this revealed religion given to Israel at Mount Sinai with the temple and, and the worship that's described there, they would have never considered that to be a religion that was on the same level, only different from the Canaanite fertility religion in which Baal was the chief god and Asherah was his uh, consort. They weren't two different ways of relating to God. In the Old Testament, that was considered truth versus falsehood. So we use the word religion a little bit differently today, and we're going to think about that for a few minutes. What he does in the passage, he uses an illustration. It's a very simple illustration, but then he carries it out in a couple of different ways. So look with me at the first two verses, which contains the whole of the illustration. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, this is an illustration of a person, a child, being brought up in a fabulously wealthy home in which she is going to inherit a vast amount of wealth. So you might think of this little baby girl that was just born recently to the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and his wife, Priscilla Chan. This child is going to be the heir of a vast amount of money. Even if they do manage to give away 99% of it, she will. And in, in the modern world, in a household like that, children are often cared for by a number of people that the family might utilize. There might be a nurse to help the mother uh, when the baby is around. There might be a teacher, a companion, or other people. In the ancient worlds, it was much more rigidly subscribed as to how a child would be brought up in a noble family. He or she would have two caretakers next to them during their entire growing up time period. The chief one was a guardian. He was kind of a supervisor in the place of the parents of everything that went on for the children. Uh, in this case, he would make sure that the child was doing the right things, that they were keeping away from bad influences and fulfilling whatever responsibilities they had. And then there would be a teacher who was under the supervision of the guardian as well. The teacher would be teaching the child everything that would be necessary for her to at some point take over the management of this vast estate. And the parents in that case would set a point at which the inheritance would come into effect for the child. Before that, they had no assets of their own. And it might be stair-stepped, as very wealthy people do at times today. The father might say, at age 20, I would like her to inherit 50% of everything she will receive. At age 30, I'd like her to receive another 25% at age 40 the last 25%, so at that point she controls everything. And that was set up regardless of the parent's presence or absence at that point in life. Or the person might receive when they reach a majority, say that was set at age 20, um, everything that came to them. However it was, that's the picture that he describes here. This child, his point is, is the heir of everything, the scion of a noble family, and yet... 
his point is, in childhood, they're no he's no different than a slave. Well, he doesn't mean that the child is treated like a slave. Slaves were not necessarily treated well. What it means is that in childhood, everything was arranged, prescribed, for the child to do. And this is what childhood is like. Childhood is viewed as a form of slavery in one sense. My wife um, worked in a birthing center for about 30 years and still does. Now she's just a lactation consultant. And uh, I've watched her show young mothers how to wrap up an infant. You know, a newborn baby has been in the womb for nine months, and in that environment, it's completely surrounded and warm all of the time. It has a feeling of being held very tightly. And so a newborn child likes to be wrapped, what we would think of as rather confined. You know, they're confined, but they enjoy that because it gives them this sense of security that they had. Now, what feels good to a little child, when they begin to get older, it becomes confining and they feel annoyed by that. And so things have to change. But the point is, in young childhood, at the beginning, the guidance of a child's life is intense. The mother pays attention to everything that is going on for the child, never lets her out of her sight. She attends to every need. And the boundaries as the child grows up are set very carefully. There's a time to get up, a time to eat, a time to play, a time to get dressed, to brush your teeth, to do your chores, a time to eat again, a time to go to bed. Everything is prescribed. The child is given no choices, and obviously, Parenthood is the responsibility and the mystery of slowly loosening the boundaries and allowing more and more choice and constantly asking yourself the question, am I doing this right? To which there is no answer, by the way. Now, that's what we expect of childhood. And his point is the child is like a slave at that point. He's under guardians and managers until that point when he reaches true adulthood, and he or she is out on his own. But if you have a 19-year-old, and he comes home and, and says, uh, Mommy, can I play with Billy this afternoon? You've got a problem, right? The confined uh, nature of childhood has been kept too close for too long, and he needs to learn to stop calling his mother Mommy and his friend Billy. His name is Bill, by the way. Now, what Paul says essentially is this illustrates the nature of religion. So he uses that simple illustration. He draws a parallel, verse 3, in the same way, in a similar manner to everything I've just described of a child growing up and the confining nature of childhood, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is relating to his hearers what life was like before Christ came. Now, let me note that in the book of Galatians, there are we sections and you sections, and this happens to be a we verse. It appears that when Paul says we, he's referring to himself as a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish household, and he's speaking specifically to other Jewish believers in the churches of the region of Galatia and northern Turkey. When he says you, he seems to be speaking to the Gentile believers in the churches. And in the early churches, there was a lot of uh, tension in the relationship of the Jews and Gentiles for a number of rather obvious reasons. And those are addressed over and over. And this is one of the books 
for their address. But here he speaks of himself and something before Christ came. What was life like? Well, it was like a form of slavery, he says, to the elementary principles of the world. What he was saying is that the Jewish religion, the way it was practiced and the way he was brought up, things like learning the law, were all prescribed as elementary principles that you built on. And so you might think of the Ten Commandments, which a child learned very early. They learned it first by having their parents, starting when they were maybe three years of age, draw the Hebrew letters on a piece of wood with honey. And they would make them lick the honey off the wood while they learned that particular letter. Aleph, Beit, Mim, Avalaf, so forth. They learned the elements of the letter starting at about age three at home. And then if they were a boy, they were sent to the rabbi to begin to learn the law. In a very early age, those letters were put together in the form of the Ten Commandments. And he thinks of those as elementary principles that were designed by God. Now, you might say to me, wait a minute, you're making this sound not very good. And in fact, Paul doesn't describe it as being very good here. He says it was a form of enslavement. We were enslaved to this. But you might say, I've heard you say before that the Old Testament faith was given by God. It was God's intention to treat his children as children at that point, his people as children, whereas now we're treated as adults. And I do say that that is true. That was God's purpose. But what he's describing is the experience of people when what was meant to be the experience of childhood that propelled them into adulthood, that's what the law was meant to do, becomes rather in itself an end. So that the end of all things is simply learning the rules and the rituals and learning to do those things. Whereas, as Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, every one of those Ten Commandments were meant to point us way beyond simply the outward keeping of it to the state of our own hearts and to teach us things about our need for God. Religion seems to be, in Paul's understanding, when rather than being something that was given to God's redeemed people, which is what the law was, it was a gracious way of life that God gave to people whom he had already saved out of Egypt by blood and power, whom he'd already guided through the wilderness, graciously providing for them and brought them to Mount Sinai. The law was not a way to be saved. The law was a gracious way of life, teaching them these are the things God wants you to do as his people. But what happened over time is the cart was put before the horse. The front was put in the back, and, and people thought of the law as a way to get to God. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but that's very basic to the idea of religion. It didn't show people how to live to please God whom they already had a relationship with. It, was, it would become used, rather, to show people how to get to God. And that's what religion always does. Religion is any way in which we put together rituals and lists of rules, no matter what form it takes, of trying to reach God. So for Paul, as he looked back, he realized the law that was meant to be God's gracious rule of life became like a tyrannical guardian that showed him what to do at every point and he kept falling short. He kept trying harder and harder. And on many of the laws, he did a good job, at least if he measured them outwardly. But there was one he couldn't keep, he says in Romans 7, coveting. He couldn't seem to control his appetite, his desire for things that God had not given to him. 
And what he's saying is that people have turned the law into a system of merit to try to reach God. That's what religion does. It's, uh, whether it's a twisting of the Old Testament or it's some other non-Christian attempt to reach God in some way, or even a use of Christianity as a set of rules and rituals in order to reach God. Now, religion has a, a fault, but the fault is not the basic truth. The basic truth that all religions start on, I guess, but you can think specifically of the one in which Paul was brought up, it's the idea that God gives us standards to obey. That is true. The Ten Commandments are given, we are told, outwardly, not only to the Jewish people, but they were imprinted on the conscience of creation of all human beings, men and women. This is like a standard of what life is meant to be and what God expects of us. It's elementary principles on which true devotion is built. But then it makes an assumption. Religion always makes this assumption about whatever the rules are that it wants to use, even the Ten Commandments. The assumption is this. God gave me these in order to reach him. So if I obey him, then he will accept me in the end. If I disobey him, then he will reject me in the end. And the idea is built that there's kind of a balance in the sky. And on one side, God's putting all of the good things that I do. And on the other side, he's putting all of the ways in which I fail him. And this balance is going to show in the end which one is heavier than the other. And if I have more bad things than good, God will reject me. If I have more good things than bad, God will accept me. That's the first assumption. And the second assumption is this. It's much more basic than the first one. Underlying that, there's an assumption that says this. I have the ability to do what God demands. God has given these rules, so obviously I'm able to do it. And, and all of that, it comes down to kind of a foundational belief that all religion, whatever form it takes, is built on. And that is, I can save myself if I do the right thing. What life is about is doing the right things, and if I do the right things, in the end, God will accept me. And certainly, if that's true, God will accept any person, whether he's Muslim or Buddhist or whatever it is, if he earnestly desires and seeks to do the right things as he conceives it. And the problem is, those ideas fail at every point except the first. The first is that God gives me standards to obey. That is true. Now, Paul tells us that the experience of religion is described in one word. If you look at verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved. So if you think of childhood as a confinement, one that is purposeful, but one that is meant to end as you move out of it and you become free and responsible as an adult, if you think of it that way, then religion becomes childhood continued on inordinately long, way beyond its needed point, so that the structure that we create in childhood, brush your teeth at this time, go to bed at this time, get up at this time, do these things, that structure that is important to help a child learn responsibility becomes what he or she lives under and seeks to live under way past the point where the structure itself is needed. Like childhood, religion is a form of slavery, but childhood is meant to end. Religion is childhood continued on in a spiritual sense of seeking to relate to God with the structure that was given to help children learn. 
Now, first of all, the problem with that is that um, the commands of God were not given to help us save ourselves. In fact, according to the Old Testament, the commands of God were given in order to show us that we cannot save ourselves. It's like this. The Ten Commandments, for example, were all meant to show us something far deeper than just the external words of the commandments. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear. Oh, it's not just outward physical act of immorality. It's the inward sense of lust. It's not just outwardly murdering another person. It's the hatred in the heart that is the foundation upon which murder occurs. The law was always meant to do that, to point people inside, to point them to what it is they needed to attend to that they actually weren't attending to. So if there's a big balance in the sky, the problem is that no one is going to pass the test because the balance doesn't have on one side my good works and on the other side my bad works. The balance has on the one side Adam as God created him and the human race to be before the fall. Adam in all of his perfection as it was known at that point, his abilities, his freedom, and ourselves now. That's always what's on the balance. We may be very good people who do very many things, but if we have any sin, the balance immediately falls on that side. You see, that's the problem with this whole balance idea. It only takes one sin to fall short. And then the other assumption is wrong, too. The fact is, in a state of sin, apart from something God could do inside of us, we are not able to do what God demands. I mean, that was made clear to the people of God at Mount Sinai. At the end of God's giving the Ten Commandments, the people say, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. We read in Deuteronomy 5 that God said in response to that, you are right in what you have spoken. That is the right answer. And then he says this, oh, that you had the heart, that my people had the heart, to do what I have commanded all of you. That is one of the most wistful sayings in the Bible. It's like a soliloquy in which God speaks just for a moment, and he gives a foreshadowing of everything that's going to unfold throughout the Old Testament when the people prove again and again and again that they cannot do what God requires. The law was meant to drive people to God, to say, I must need something more I must have some ability that only God could give, that only God could restore. But religion is an inability to see beyond just the external and say, well, these are the things God has said to do, and I'm able to do it, and so I'm going to redouble my efforts to try to do it. In other words, the message of the Bible is that we cannot save ourselves. Whereas religion has as its foundational belief we can save ourselves by doing what God requires. And that's the problem. Whatever religion it is, religion is an attempt to reach God. It will always fail. Even people who seriously try to do the things that God says, if their motive is to try to reach God by being obedient, they eventually will either become just self-righteous and lower the standards and say, well, it's just talking about outward kind of actions. And I can do that. I can be morally pure if it just means staying out of bed with someone. You know? I can, I can not murder someone, even if I feel really angry and hate them and say bad things about them. If you just take it outwardly, people are able to do that, and that just produces self-righteousness. Or it promotes discouragement. 
Religious people are often the most discouraged people there are because they try and at some point they fail. And what we do when we fail, I remember this for many years of my childhood, what we do when we fail is we beat ourselves up. We convince ourselves we didn't do good enough. I should have done better than that. And after beating ourselves up for a few days, something clicks in size that says unconsciously, well, I did that enough. I've proved that I'm really sorry. And now I'm going to go at it again. I'm going to redouble my efforts to seek to do again what it is I need to do. And it becomes like a never-ending escalator going down. You keep stepping off for a moment and beating yourself up and then stepping on it again and saying, I'll keep trying harder. And so Paul says that didn't work, and the turning point is in verse 4. He turns to the second half of this passage, and it says, but. That's a great signal that something different is going to be shown here. It says, but when the fullness of time had come. God acted at just the right time. This tells us that God acted according to a plan, an eternal plan that he was unfolding in time in the human race. And when the time was perfectly ripe, when religion had shown its powerlessness to do anything. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, if you think about it, seeing born of woman wasn't really necessary. If he said born under the law, that would tell you that he was born, so he had to be born of a woman, right? I mean, there is no other way to be born. But he says born of woman, and that's significant because it takes us back to the beginning of the Bible something that happened at the fall in the garden when God cursed the serpent. He, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring of the woman, was to, and what did it say? And he shall bruise or crush your head and you, the offspring of the serpent, will bruise his heel. It's describing the difference between a fatal and a non-fatal blow. And what the promise was is that someday a child would be born of a daughter of Eve, and that child would be the redeemer. He would crush the serpent's head. He would undo what had been done. That's called the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. But Paul is specifically alluding to it, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was born in fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve. He was fulfilling that in this Redeemer being born of a woman. Then he says, born under the law. And Christ, by his coming, changed everything. What, what formerly could easily be turned into just a system of merit of trying to reach God, Jesus did something so different and so dramatic that it changes everything. So read with me one more time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now he says there are three things that Christ did. The first is to redeem, redemption. To redeem those under the law because of our natural inability to do what God demands. Because through the fall, we lost that ability to do from the heart with any kind of purity of motive the commands of God, God sent his own son, and he did keep the law. And by his keeping of the law, he qualified himself to be the redeemer of God's people. And the word redemption means to purchase something back. 
God himself acted on our behalf by making the payment for our sins. That's the first thing Christ did in his coming. And then it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this is referring not to the custom of adopting an infant child and bringing him or her into our family, as is often done today. It's referring to the Roman custom as ado- of adopting an adult child to become your heir. This would be done in noble families, in which a person did not have offspring, did not have an heir, and he might adopt someone who would immediately enter into the adult status as his heir. Adoption. Here, son is used purposefully, adoption as sons. It's one of those places where there's a distinction obviously being drawn between the child in the first half of the passage and the son. We might say a difference between a girl or a boy and adult son or daughter. And that's the idea here. He adopted us. That is, he made us his own child. As sons and daughters, he gives to us all that we uh, are entitled to, we might say, as adult believers. And then finally, the last word he uses is heir. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He doesn't only redeem us, and adopt us into his family as adults, but he makes us heirs. That is, he lavishes on us all of the gifts and the blessing that he meant from the beginning to give us in Christ. So many people are caught in this experience of religion, and they may have the title Christian beside it. It is so easy. I remember growing up and going to church, different kinds of churches, but whether it was a Protestant church or a Catholic church, which are the two different kinds that I went to, before I was uh, 19, whichever one it was, I had the same ideas of religion. I can do what God expects me to do. I just need to know what it is. And if I know what it is, and I do the right things that God tells me to do, he will accept me in the end. It's so easy to have that. But Paul says ultimately it's a form of slavery that's going to produce either uh, self-righteousness or disappointment. But at Christmas, we're reminded that Jesus, by his birth, changed that in a definitive way. He provided what the law couldn't do. By his death and his resurrection, he sent his spirit who enables those who believe in him to do what God commands. In fact, he doesn't only enable us. It says that he writes his law in our hearts. That is, the motivation for obedience becomes internal, becomes built into us so that we no longer need this outward form to remind us every day what to do, but like adulthood, we brush our teeth at the right time, not when mommy tells us, because we know that we need to, and we eat, and we exercise. We do the things because we have now built into us the motivation to do it as adults. So don't think that Christianity is one of the world's great religions. That's not how the Bible presents it. Don't even think of it as the best religion. Don't think of Christianity as Jesus came to give us the true religion because all that means is that they have rules and rituals over here, but our rules and rituals are right. That's what people often think. That's not the nature of the Christian faith. Christian faith is not even a religion that really works. Like all the other ones don't work, only ours is right and better. Christianity is meant to provide us a relationship with God in which we experience redemption, the forgiveness of sins the presence of the Holy Spirit, giving us a sense of joy 
and peace in the desire to follow God. The knowledge of God as our Father, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our heart. God makes us his sons and his daughters. That's what we have by faith. And that's what we're reminded at Christmas time that with the coming of Jesus, religion became a relationship with God. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen us that we would understand and apply these things to our own lives. Please free people from this sense that they're redoubling their efforts to do good things for God. Help them to understand who Jesus is. Assist them by your spirit to respond and to know you as their Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.